0: the midtown detroit studios of wdet this is detroit today
1: today we're going to talk about what the path forward looks like in the narratives around racial justice and we want to talk about how that path is being debated among liberals themselves not the conservatives are so often cast as the opposition. We're going to talk with the author of an article that asks what it means to go beyond racial liberalism. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from Enpia. Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. After ignoring the topic of race for a long time in politics, there is a new debate emerging in some democratic political circles. That is, how should liberals deal with the topic of race in politics? Should they lean into it and push hard for not only racial justice, but a pervasive racial consciousness that could shape a nation that is dedicated to the idea of equality? Or should Democrats ignore race and instead favor a colorblind colorblind approach to policy issues and debates and lean toward a populist agenda that's aimed at attracting more white voters. That of course has been a debate inside the Democratic Party for some time. But many people now believe that Democrats not only need to talk about race and front it as a premier issue, but that they need to marry it with issues of class. That the way to expand the Democratic voting bloc is indeed to talk more about race. Now, this argument points to the Republican Party as an example. Think about the dog whistles and the explicitly racist language that the conservative party has begun to use over the past several decades. And think about the way that it has galvanized white voters in a surprising and enduring way. In a recent article, Roosevelt Institute CEO and President Felicia Wong discusses this broad debate bubbling up in Democratic circles and argues in favor of discussing race and class in order to win over a larger voting bloc, one that won't alienate white moderates. But as Biden falls in the polls and Democrats look less likely to pass bigger spending bills, let alone voting rights legislation, what does that strategy mean for the midterms? Will that philosophy bring more people to the polls or will it turn them away? Will it bring more people to the polls in a way that will help Democrats or will it energize white voters against the Democratic Party? And what does the message and the strategy literally look like on the ground. What would you do as the Democratic Party to focus more on race, to try to use race as a rallying point for a liberal agenda? That's where we begin the conversation today. How should liberals, how should Democrats deal with issues of race? And joining us to talk about this is Felicia Wong. She's president and CEO of the Roosevelt Institute, a New York think tank dedicated to advancing the legacy and values of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Felicia Wong, welcome to Detroit Today.
2: Thank you so much. Glad to be here.
1: So let's start with explaining that debate that I just discussed a bit in the intro. Uh, Why is it that in recent memory... Democrats haven't wanted to talk as much about race in politics, and why are they thinking now, or some of them thinking now, that perhaps they ought to do that differently?
2: Well, Stephen, I'm happy to talk about the political strategy here, but I want to take a step back for a second to like, do a little big picture scene setting. Okay. I think it's really important to remember that We are two-plus years, almost two-plus years into this pandemic, right? And we are more than a decade into both the Tea Party and then the MAGA movement gaining power in our politics. So Americans are hurting, and Americans of color are hurting and angry and anxious and feeling powerless most of all. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to find a politics that connects to people who actually need good government solutions and good political solutions most. So that's sort of the underlying moral argument uh, behind the political argument that my colleagues and I are trying to make in our arguments to go beyond what we call racial liberalism. And I also think it's important to, you know, that we're having this conversation um, the day after our nation celebrated uh, Martin Luther King Day, right? Because I reread some of the speeches and some of the writings of Mm -hmm. Dr. King over this past weekend. I read all, not just parts, but all of the letter from a Birmingham jail. Mm -hmm. I read a bunch of his work calling for a bold commitment to justice and not just a lukewarm liberalism. And I think that right now what he would say is that we have had a lukewarm commitment to a kind of liberalism um, from many on the center left for decades. Um, and he would also say, I think, that this just not, has not worked. So the first argument is about, you know, sort of both the moral and the policy and the economic and the health and the housing reasons that we need a stronger approach to race equity. And then we can talk about the politics. Yeah. But I just want to put that one on the table first.
1: Yeah, you know, I, and I think that's, that's really important context for- for this conversation, which is what is the practical impact of racial inequality on people's lives? And it's not something that I think the political conversation that I think we're gonna have often takes into, into account, at least not enough. Um, and I think there are some assumptions that make that, that, that kind of confound uh, that, that notion. There are there are lots of people. There are lots of Americans who believe that uh, that we've solved the big picture issues around racial inequality. That that the passage of the Civil Rights Act, for instance, or the Voting Rights Act in the 1960s wiped away uh, you know de jure um, uh, inequality in a way that that means that most people today don't experience racial inequality in nearly the same way as people did before and uh, you, uh, as you point out and and um, the examples that that you point to all suggest that that's that's not true and it's I think that's the beginning of the divergence in the political narrative is who acknowledges that and and who's still denying it
2: I think that's right. I mean, let's start by looking at some of the facts. I know facts are really popular in today's, uh, you know, media <laughs> conversation, but I'm going to try to start there. I run a think tank after all. Right. And look, <laughs> deeply entrenched racial discrimination is absolutely central to American life, right? Across every indicator, income and jobs, wealth and savings, education, health 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 outcomes criminal justice right material effects of racial inequality is really real these outcomes across all of these categories are worse for people of color than white americans and here's the thing this is true even when you take educational attainment into account so for generations certainly for decades since i was little right The idea had been that a college degree, at least finishing high school Mm and then striving for college, like that was the central goal that liberals tried to ask everybody to achieve um, because higher education was supposed to lead to a better paying job, more economic security, family well-being. But we just know today that this hasn't panned out. You know, on average today, a black family whose head of household has gone to college has less wealth than a white family whose head of household didn't graduate from high school. So even with education, right, supposed to be the great equalizer, we really aren't seeing all of the benefits for black and brown Americans, indigenous Americans too, by the way. So this is something we just have to begin addressing. Mm -hmm. And I'd further say that to me, it's pretty obvious that we can do better in redressing these enormous differences between white Americans and people of color. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not like there's no answers out there. But if we are going to do better, we need to break away from the boundaries that um, what my colleagues and I call racial liberalism which we should talk about. Um, but we need to break away from the boundaries that racial liberalism has imposed on both our politics and our policies. Yeah. This idea that you can just remove discrimination, right? You should have you should definitely not be bigoted in public. That was the old racial liberal idea, mm-hmm. you know. And after that, you should have let the private sector and market-based mechanisms like all people competing for jobs. You could should let that be the answer to um, the ladder of opportunity, and that's going to yield greater equality and more well-being for black and brown Americans. Well, that was the idea, and that worldview has completely failed, just yep. cited some of the data, so we do need something better. I think we can do something better, but let's expand our imaginations first.
1: Right. So, So let's spend a little time talking about that term, racial liberalism. Uh, I think you mean something well I know you mean something very specific uh, when you say that I'm not sure that popularly it's the way that most people think about uh, conversations uh, about race there's something there's something uh, I think uh, a little a little esoteric perhaps about um, uh, about that term and the way that that you're using it so so, just define it for us, uh, and, and and tell right. us wh- who who's who's advocating for this this racial liberalism.
2: Right. Well. <laughs> I wouldn't be esoteric and I wouldn't, uh, you know, start with <laughs> multi words like neoliberalism. If I, you know, if I didn't run a think tank, Right? Uh, you could laugh at me about that. But look, I do think we need to start with this idea of neoliberalism. I will get to racial liberalism in a second and I hope I can kind of, you know, bring it to the level where, you know, folks listening to this show will kind of nod their heads and start to say like, yeah, that makes sense. But let's start with this idea of neoliberalism for just a second. Mm -hmm. Um, This is like a, you know, everyone's favorite six-syllable word. But what does it mean anyway, right? (laughs) Well, it's this idea that many of us grew up with. I think you and I might have both grown up with this idea that, you know, private companies and the markets were going to bring a kind of economic and political freedom and, and well-being, right? And that both our economy and our politics should uh, make sure that individuals are free to, you know, get a job, buy or sell a home, um, start a company, Um, and that privatization was really the way to growth and prosperity. Mm. Um, So that was this idea of neoliberalism. Um, And I think our approach to racial justice, certainly starting in the 1980s, kind of developed within that very market-based framework. Um, So starting, you know, if you look before the 1980s to the time of Dr. King, Uh, To the to the height of the civil rights movement, you had lots of ideas for how people of color were going to get more voice and more equality and more economic justice in America. You had the idea that, you know, you should have full employment, that government should do everything it could to guarantee every person a job. Dr. King asked for things like a basic income. People should not live below uh, a certain income level. Obviously, he was fighting for, really fighting for the kind of desegregation in schools and in housing that we do not see in America today, right? So there were all these really big ideas in the late 1950s, early 1960s, early, but surely by the end of the 1960s, uh, Dr. King was calling for a lot of things that today we would call radical, mm-hmm. right? But by the 1980s, in the shadow of this kind of market-based neoliberalism, market-based way of thinking about our politics, you know, we, we developed this thin way of thinking about racial equality that my colleagues and I call racial liberalism. Um, and this approach says, as I said just a second ago, you certainly can't be personally bigoted on the job in public. You know, you will be, you can't hold a job if you're bigoted, even that has changed these days. But anyway, (laughs) we can talk about that too. You can't can't have overtly discriminatory hiring laws, but that's kind of it. So it was uh, racial liberalism as a way of privileging anti-discrimination, but not doing all of the other things to unwind centuries of segregation and centuries of enslavement, frankly. And so this kind of racial liberalism really denied our history. And it pretended that, you know, racialized rules, for example, you know, different kinds of mortgages and housing laws for Mm -hmm. black people versus white people, which I know is incredibly prevalent in Detroit and many cities across the country, right? You know, racialized norms like the way employers hire, the way doctors treat patients, racial liberalism kind of pretends that those things don't exist. And so it, it, I'm not saying it intentionally did this, but it really perpetuated this kind of economic inequality. And even more than that, it perpetuated political domination by a mostly white political class. Yeah. Uh, And it also limited our imagination, as I said, when I started out. You know, we just don't think anymore about the kinds of things that Dr. King was arguing for. Dr. King and many people in the civil rights movement, of course, uh, were arguing for in the 1960s. I'm not sure we've gone forward. I think we've kind of gone backwards since then. and I think we need to recapture some of that some of that bold for our politics
1: i mean i i think maybe a shorthand for 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 people to kind of understand uh, some of the, what we're talking about when we use that term racial liberalism is is the term race neutrality which is which is kind of related and and i think at the core of this idea of racial liberalism this idea that if you just pretend that Everyone is equal, uh, and and act as though everyone should be equal. That it will be the 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 solve for for the racial inequality quote of the past. Um, and, and as you point out, I, I think many 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 of us uh, who were born after the nineteen sixties. Uh, we're we're kind of bathed in this in this idea of of that being the way the way forward. Um, and and the difficulty now, I think, is undoing that learning to the extent that, uh, you know, the things that you were pointing out earlier in the conversation are true, that that sure, in an ideal world, uh, eliminating, you know, um, legal discrimination would have produced uh, a, a more equal outcome, but it hasn't. And the reasons that it hasn't, um, you know, require us to think and talk and in some cases act specifically around the idea of race to, to, to sort of tear down those barriers. I mean, I think, is that a fair sort of summation of, of, of that, that, that idea, that set of ideas?
2: Yeah, that's totally fair, right? And in some very kind of ahistorical way, you can understand the appeal of race neutrality, treat everyone the same. But you can't treat everyone the same if we've got, if we have countries of history that have treated right. everybody differently <laughs> and we still do it. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, so yeah, you're absolutely right. Race neutrality, both in our kind of everyday practices and frankly embedded in our laws. That's part of what my colleagues and I are arguing. We've got to get past. Um, and I will also say this, and this can get us kind of into the political conversation,
1: mm-hmm.
2: right? Like, um, One thing to remember is that part of the political conversation and part of this idea of popularism, which is part of what the Democrats have been flirting with for the last year, only talk about things that are popular, in parentheses, popular with white people, because white people are still the majority of voters in presidential elections, and that is true, right? But only talk about things that are popular if you want people to vote for you. Well, here's the thing, Um, public opinion in this country has never been the place to start on matters of racial justice because it has never been race forward, right? In 1964, again, going back to the 60s, you know, 74% of Americans believed that civil rights movements would hurt the movement for racial equality. I mean, now, we just celebrated the King weekend, but Mm -hmm. then people did not want to see civil rights demonstrations. In 1965, you know, almost 70% of Americans were hesitant. They didn't know what to think about the Civil Rights Act. They wanted to see everything go slow. Um, Obviously, that's changed now. You know, four out of five Americans now believe that our mid-century achievement of civil rights is one of the greatest things we achieved in the 20th century. So public opinion can change. And the problem with this idea of popularism, only talk about things that are popular, uh, again, mostly with white people, is that You're going to be sort of the thermometer, just measuring where things are right now. And I'm not going to pretend that things are great right now, Mm -hmm. but you're not going to be the thermostat. You're not going to try to lead people um, where um, they need to go. And frankly, where many of them, I believe, want to go, but they don't have like a positive project to sign up for. So you end up kind of moving to the lowest common denominator and the lowest common denominator uh, is not great.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Felicia Wong, president and CEO of the Roosevelt Institute, uh, about this idea of how we talk about race, why we should talk about race, and how that takes shape in the context of our political dialogues uh, in, this company, in this country. Uh, we want to hear from you as well. What are you thinking about race and the way we talk about it today? What were you taught about race? Do discussions of race make you feel uncomfortable? Do you feel uncomfortable when politicians, for instance, Talk about race and inequality and push for policies that are specifically aimed at making things more equal. As always, the number here on the phones is 313 577 1019. That's 313 577 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter and put comments there. We'll try to work you into the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit today.
2: Bringing you news that matters.
1: Stories that impact your life.
2: Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is
1: 1019 WDET.
2: Detroit's NPR station.
1: You're listening to Detroit today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest this hour is Felicia Wong. She is president and CEO of the Roosevelt Institute, which is a New York think tank that is dedicated to advancing the legacy and values of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, We're talking with her today about a piece uh, she wrote about the ways that we talk about race and racism. In politics, Uh, she's discussing the broad debate that's bubbling up in some Democratic circles that argues in favor of discussing race and class in a very explicit way in order to actually win over a larger voting bloc and do it in a way that won't alienate white moderates, The, the block of voters that Democrats really depend on for electoral success but who often are a little sheepish about the idea of talking about things in racial terms, acknowledging the extent to which racial equality still shapes so much of American life. Uh, we want to hear from you about what you think about not just the way Democrats or Republicans discuss race, but how we talk about it uh, in social and um, and cultural terms here in America today think of how much more we do discuss race right now than we did even five or ten years ago uh, partially because of the uh, really horrific things that we see thanks to cell phone technology that uh, that exposed the, the really ugly side of being black in America the real dangers that we as African Americans face still in a country that was founded on the ideal of our inequality. Um, We wanna hear from you about what you make of all of that and how you think we get to a place where racial inequality isn't so pervasive. As always, uh, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to social media and put comments there and uh, we can include you in the conversation that way. We've already got a number of people queued up to talk about this uh, this issue. Um, but before we get to listeners, Felicia, I want to have you talk just a little about the political context here. That is what you were writing about. Um, but I guess the, the, the big picture question for me is why do you believe that a, a more explicit racial context for things um, uh, the 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 sort of inclusion of race and race inequality and discussion of policy will expand the voting block for Democrats. I know lots and lots of Democrats who would push back against that and say, that's the reason they're unable to win in places like West Virginia, for instance, where Joe Manchin hangs onto his Senate seat uh, by a very thin hair. If he were to Vote for voting rights legislation, for instance. I think he would say that'd be the end of his political career, at least in terms of uh, the Senate. W- why do you why do you say that? There's a a different way to think about all of that.
2: Yes, well, uh, Senator Manchin says many things.
1: <laughs> but, <laughs> he does, <laughs> um, but
2: I, look. But I, I do want to take this argument very seriously. Uh, that um, I am definitely advocating for talking about race and I recognize that I am not a political candidate I've never run for political office but so I and I know that you can't talk about race exactly the same way in every district right you can't talk about race and race equity in Detroit or in AOC's district in the Bronx Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's district in the Bronx in the same way that you can talk about it in West Virginia. But I think we also ought to be clear that not talking about race and not finding ways to connect to the kinds of equity that I believe most Americans really want uh, for our democracy means that you are leaving a kind of latent racism to and latent white supremacy to be discussed by uh, conservative politicians, because that is, and the research is very clear on this, uh, that is what underlies most of the MAGA movement, that is what underlies Uh, much of conservative politics today, sort of like keeping America white again. And if you don't want that to become the narrative, if you as a progressive politician, a liberal politician, a democratic politician, then you have to find ways to talk about um, race. And what I'm arguing in my recent work and what my colleagues and I are arguing is that the ways, finding ways to talk about race that focus on values and morals and ideals that are actually, I think they're bread and butter American, like that's what we ought to do. So we ought to be talking more about the kind of material equity that you and I started this conversation with. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to live in a country where there's this much racial inequality. Mm -hmm. At least, I think that the majority of Americans don't want that. I think the majority of Americans want to live in a country where we can actually repair and redress some of the mistakes of our past. And I actually think that we want to live in a country where we've got more freedom. Uh, That means that people can live free regardless of their skin color. So I think that there are a lot of ways to talk about race uh, and we need to find the right ways to do it. I think Democrats haven't always done that. Uh, But I think uh, progressives and Democrats need to get there. And just one more thing, you probably want to go to the phone. No, no, go ahead. Let me just say, let me just say this. You know, one of the interesting conversations right now that is, of course, very much about race is voting rights. And you wouldn't know it from the, and we're going to talk a lot about voting rights this week as the Senate tries to pass, you know, voting rights legislation. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't know it from media coverage, most media coverage, but expanding and securing voting rights is actually widely popular across voters of all parties. There's a new survey just out today from Navigator Research that shows that, you know, by a more than 40 point margin, the American public wants to see the Freedom to Vote Act Mm -hmm. passed. Mm -hmm. And that's obviously true for Democrats. It's, you know, the net support for Democrats is close to 80 percent. But it's also 25 points up amongst independents and it's even three points up amongst Republicans. And so the reason I say this is when you talk about things like voting rights as issues of fairness and racial fairness, you know, you shouldn't not be allowed to vote or make it. It shouldn't be harder to vote because of your racial background, Um, even Republicans would like to see that kind of policy passed. So my point is there are ways to talk about race uh, within our politics. Um, I don't think we have experimented enough or tried hard enough to get uh, to the two answers that work in different kinds of, in different places, different geographies across
1: America. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to read a social media comment and, and take a call that I think uh, both really, really focus on this point that we're talking about right now. Michael on Twitter says, um, purely anecdotal, I talked to a number of non-wealthy, low-income white people who don't follow politics closely, and they all theor- theoretically vote against the Democratic Party. They believe the Democratic Party is out to help people of color and higher-income white people. Not them he asks if that's normal. I also want to go to Alex in Bloomfield on the phones who has West Bloomfield um who has a, a similar point. Alex, welcome to the show. Are you there, Alex? I'm sorry well I, Alex, give us a call back and uh, uh uh we'll try to get you back on we can't We can't hear you for some reason, um, but Alex was also making a point about people reacting, white people reacting poorly to Black Lives Matter and, and thinking that these, these protestations, these, these demonstrations are somehow a threat to their well-being, their station in life. And, and I think that is the, the sort of uh, undercurrent of the, the conversation that we're having is to what extent do white Americans believe that equality for African Americans means them giving something up, taking a step back, uh, subjecting themselves to a version of inequality uh, that African Americans experience? And I think that's you have to you have to address that. I don't know if you address it head-on or if you address it by as you're as you're kind of suggesting triangulating, right, showing that, um, that equality for, for, for one person actually uh, benefits somebody, somebody else. But, but I think y- you can't ignore that that is one of the strains in our politics that makes what you're talking about doing pretty, pretty risky and, and therefore very difficult.
2: Well, I definitely think that I think you need to divide the material benefits or the economic benefits of the kinds of policies that I'm talking about from some of the emotional or psychological or social identity strains Mm -hmm. that clearly are part of our politics. So it is very clear that build back better, uh, which was the, uh, is the legislation that I suppose remains in front of Congress right now that um, argues for more public investments in Green manufacturing and decarbonized, you know, uh, uh, sector decarbonizing sectors of our economy, and are used for investing in more for elder care, more for child care. There is almost no question that that legislation would benefit all Americans, including white Americans, especially. Uh, white Americans who are workers or who are moderate income or low income. There is just no question that that and a lot of the other legislation that we've seen, um, some of which uh, Senator Manchin does not does not approve of, nonetheless would benefit white West Virginians. Mm. Uh, that being said, I do think that this psychological perception the sort of Uh, emotional wages or psychic wages of whiteness are very real. Um, And that is largely because we have been subject not just to the social media sort of uh, attacks uh, from the right on the movement for black lives, but actually this strain of sort of uh, whiteness is better than blackness. And the closer you are to whiteness, uh, the more sort of, benefit you get this is a very long part of american piece of american history american you know kind of political culture mm-hmm. it's it's not it's not just that it's being um you know uh, exacerbated by instagram and twitter and facebook al- although it is it, it, it's it's worsened by that for sure and i think that uh if we're being real we have to contend with that And um, that being said i'll just say two things which is um I think it's really different um, for uh, younger generations. You know, I think that uh, I have teenage kids, right? Uh, my kids and all of their friends um, are definitely much more comfortable talking about race, talking about whiteness, talking about Asianness. I'm Chinese American. My kids are uh, mixed race, Chinese-American, identify as Asian. They're much more comfortable talking about this than are uh, people of my generation. And so I think that that is, I think we are going to see a much more fluid conversation about a multiracial democracy um, when we get to, uh, you know, when my kids are of voting age. Um, and then the other thing I would say is that you are seeing some, um, Obviously, there's tension amongst different racial groups, but there's also a lot of cross-racial solidarity that I'm heartened by. You know, Asians for Black Lives is very real. And Asians and and African-Americans, Asians and Black Americans have not always had great relationships. Obviously, we know this. But Asians for Black Lives is a real movement. And I'd also say that... um, that uh, I was really heartened to see that a group of Japanese Americans who themselves benefited from reparations after FDR's incarceration of Japanese Americans in the 1930s and 1940s, a group of those Japanese Americans has recently come out in favor of reparations for descendants of slavery. So um, I do think progress is possible. I don't think it's always easy.
1: Yeah, yeah. Again, uh, thanks very much for the comment on Twitter Michael and Alex, uh, we did get your comment in there, even though we could not hear you on the phones. I want to take an, uh, another quick break here. And then when we come back, uh, continue this conversation with you, Felicia Wong, and with our listeners, uh, Bernadette in Redford, Aaron in Detroit, David in Southfield. We'll hear from you next. If you want to join them, 313 577 1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Things in Detroit today on 101.9 WDETM. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest this hour is Felicia Wong. She's president and CEO of the Roosevelt Institute. Uh, wrote a piece recently urging the idea that Democrats should embrace the idea of talking more about race and racial inequality and that that strategy could help broaden voter support for Democratic candidates and Democratic ideas. Uh, We want to hear from you about how much politicians talk about race and racial inequality, how we as Americans talk about race and racial inequality, and whether you think it's a productive way of rethinking those things, of pushing back against the inequality that we've lived with uh, for the entirety of this nation's history. As always, we want to hear from you on the phones, Give us a call. 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and uh, we'll put uh, your comments into the conversation that way. I want to go back to the phones really quickly uh, for a couple of quick points. Aaron in Detroit. Aaron, what's on your mind?
0: Good morning. The panic over the Democrat Party's focusing too much on race is one that's largely set up by big-money establishment media, in my opinion, the Democratic Party's real problem is that they don't focus on the economic problems that most Americans are facing, like the wealth gap. Mm-hmm. If a Democratic politician held up a $2,000 ambulance bill and said, this is an obscenity, I would volunteer and canvass for that person all day long. That's what Democrats need to do.
1: Uh, Aaron, really appreciate the call and, and your insight there. I think that's a, a really, really incisive point. Uh, let's go to Bernadette. And Radford, who has a, a, a similar idea. Bernadette, welcome to the show.
0: Good morning, Stephen. Happy New Year. Happy and New Year And I you wanted too. to say that um, Democrats seem to focus on high moral ideals. We have been talking about race since the beginning of our country, let's unite not on race but on economics and get an advertising team that could sell us uh, gym shoes for $600, sell us on the idea that everybody um, who works needs to have a government that protects them and not uh, fight just for the wealthiest.
1: Uh, Bernadette, uh, again, really, really great point, and and thanks for calling to make it to Felicia Wong. I think part of what you're arguing is that Democrats need to talk about these things differently, and in other words, to to kind of marry the ideas of racial inequality and income or economic inequality as a way of broadening support. Is that is that a fair? characterization of what you're saying and what uh, what your reaction might be to what Bernadette and Aaron had to say.
2: Yes, absolutely. I think one of the things I am most excited about in politics, and which is a hard sentence to say these days, by the way, but one of the things I'm most excited about in politics over the last couple of years is the way in which a kind of new economics that focuses on the wealth gap that focuses on making sure that corporations and the wealthy pay their fair share that doesn't let corporations and kind of private concerns run roughshod over our media it's, we're tr- that is what democrats that is everything that the democratic agenda is trying to put forward right now uh, in terms of antitrust legislation in front of Congress, in terms of, again, the Build Back Better Act, which I've discussed, which is currently stalled. So I think the idea that talking about economics more, and I would argue, weaving real uh, racial justice. Um, and the argument for a multiracial democracy into that way of talking about this new economics, that is what I I am arguing for. And I love Bernadette's idea of hiring, you know, uh, an advertising firm that can sell us $600 sneakers to do this. Believe me, I think Democrats have tried very hard to find the right advertising firm or the right right kind of marketing for these arguments. Unfortunately, the playing field right now, uh, I mean, these ideas are popular. Let's be really clear the, the problem is not that um, progressive economics isn't popular. Yeah. Uh, any of these ideas, the child tax credit, higher taxes for the wealthy, higher taxes on corporations, these now get like super majorities, close to 70 percent support across the American public. Um, the real problem is the playing field. And we've mentioned Senator Manchin several times, but the playing field against, you know, within which these ideas uh, need to traverse in order to become law. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think your callers are right. The yeah. economics and the race, economic justice and racial justice and equity can move in the same direction. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, again, thanks very much for the call and the comments, uh, Bernadette. Let's go to David in Southfield. David, welcome to the show.
0: Uh, yes, uh, thank you for taking me. Uh, a couple of comments I was making, but I think there's a little something I'm going to add to. Um, I think that some of the, it's true that there has been the racial justice issue. One can't deny, but. Sometimes I think it, there may be some intrinsic problems that we should look at. Uh, you know, I don't, I'm not evolutionist, I'm the but sometimes we have uh, some things that have brought us down. For example, the black family, um, you know, is not in the same position as the white family. And some of the social inequities are related to the fact that as blacks we have a kind of a weak family structure. Not everyone does, but in general we do. And that may also bring down our economics so that our numbers don't look as good, because we don't have the black family structural support, uh, some of which is carried over from slavery. Uh, so it may not necessarily be our fault totally, but uh, part of it has to do with how our attitude is about maintaining a strong black family, uh, which actually may improve our economic fight. Uh The other problem is I think that as blacks, we've allowed ourselves to become um, socially uh, segregated uh, because if all blacks are Democrats, or at least a large number, then the Republicans will fight – it, lo- it looks like the blacks are fi- I mean, Republicans are fighting blacks, but they're really fighting other Democrats, and it looks like it's a racial thing, whereas, in fact, it's because we've allowed ourselves um, to become targets. Um, and we join. and I think it's good if, the, if politics were, were integrated, uh, like our society. I think that some of the – what looks like racism or something – may not necessarily be racial. It may actually be, for example, if, if, if all blacks were Republicans, then Republicans would support everything black so that they would vote. Um, so, you know, it's a matter of getting uh, an integrated political structure hmm. so that the politics are such that you got, you know, you're not sure what a black is going to vote for. But if you say no matter who you are, a black person will never vote Republican. Well, never, then the Republicans will always be opposed to Anything that yeah. allows blacks to vote, so yeah. I David, really become integrated.
1: David, uh, I, I really appreciate uh, the, the, those observations. I think that's a really important part of this uh, this conversation as well. I want to quickly take Chris in West Bloomfield, who has, um, uh, I'm sorry, Jim in Ann Arbor. Before I get to Chris in West Bloomfield, Jim in Ann Arbor uh, doesn't want to focus on party politics too much. Thinks that the the, the two party system and the way we frame things is maybe part of the problem as well. Uh, Chris in West Bloomfield, I want to get you in here too as uh, uh, really quickly. Go ahead. Hi, thank you so much. Uh-huh. I just
0: had a, a
2: couple of maybe observations since it's a pretty big topic and I can't say I've given a, you know, I, I have all the answers. But one thing is that I spend a lot of time in rural Michigan and I see there's a lot of country poor. Like there's not a lot of economic opportunity in a lot of these small towns throughout, throughout rural Michigan. And then I just want to talk about Fred Hampton a little bit. Uh, you know, he's obviously leaned into uh, talking about racial disparity, but
1: also connecting that with economic disparity and uh, within different racial groups. And it seems like Democrats ignore country poor quite a bit. And I think that's a lot of what fuels
2: uh, not the ignoring it, but country poor is sort of what fuels a lot of this racial resentment and maybe a message of leaning into it, like your guest is suggesting, similar to the way that Fred Hampton did, uh, might be uh, effective.
1: Again, Chris, thanks very much for the call and the comments. Lot, a lot of uh, a lot of ideas there, Felicia Wong, for you to to respond to. Uh, Go ahead, though.
2: Yeah, lots of ideas. Well, again, just to repeat what I said earlier, I don't think the intention of you know democratic policies and the Democratic Party right now is to ignore ignore, uh, the rural poor at all. I think many of the policy ideas that are being put forward uh, by the mainstream of the Democratic Party right now would actually uh, are already helping workers and families uh, in rural regions. So that that's kind of unquestionable. I, I get how it can feel that way, uh, given the way uh, we talk about this. But that's certainly not what's happening in terms of the policies and the policy impact um, themselves. Uh, the caller previous to that talked about uh, the idea that the two-party system might be part of the problem. You know, I think there's really something there. Um, if we had, which is a very hard thing to imagine in American politics, but um, if we had a multi-party system, um, then you a five or six party system, the way you have uh, in many European countries, mm-hmm. um, you know, then you could imagine the MAGA faction, which I believe is really dangerous for our politics. So, you know, they get... I don't know, a a small percentage of the vote. I don't know what they'd get yet, but they wouldn't be dominating an entire party. And then you could have a debate, a real debate um, on the merits between sort of the center left. I'd probably be on the left part of the center left, but the center left and the center and the center right in ways that I think you'd end up with a lot of 70% agreement and you'd end up, I think, isolating Um, the most dangerous part of our politics right now. So I think the idea that the two-party system is part of the problem uh, is a great observation. It's not 100% clear to me, which I think your caller before that was sort of hinting at also about, like, you know, politics, political parties becoming segregated. Um, We talk about that, too. But anyway, I think the current party structure um, is not really helping our politics. That said... The way to get from here to there to a multi-party system is kind of it's difficult to imagine. Yeah.
1: OK. Uh, Felicia Wong, president and CEO of the Roosevelt Institute. It was really great to have you here with us for this conversation. Thanks so much for for joining us.
2: Thank you to you and your listeners. Um, I hope everyone stays safe and healthy out there. Yeah, really. Keep fighting a good fight.
1: <laughs> That's right.
2: Thank That's
1: you. right. Okay. Thank you. All right. Uh, that is going to do it for us today on Detroit Today. Come back tomorrow. I will be here and I hope you will too. Detroit Today is produced by Jake Neer and Sam Corey. Our program director is Joan Isabella. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. And Detroit Today's music is created. By Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. As always, we'll talk again tomorrow.